Good evening, good evening. Hey, just in case you, you came in late, we're just reminding you that if you've got young people in here with you, we're doing an adult conversation tonight as part of the message. So mi- middle school and older, uh, we would recommend that you only have, have in here. So, um, and then if you've not been having the kinds of conversation that you should have been having with your kids, you're going to be having them later tonight. So, all right. <laughs> hey, let's do a couple of giveaways for, um, um, you know, as part of the Super Series, we've been doing some superhero giveaway items, and so I'm going to give, this is the Dark Knight Rises, I'm going to give this to Wayne Thomason because he took down the, the uh, Poker Knight, so he was the big winner, so I'm going to let that be just be passed back to Wayne, and so they don't they don't play with real money, just don't get nervous. It's a buy-in, and the buy-in raises the money, but they're not, we're not really taking people's money through gambling to, to, uh, to but we would if we needed to, to send our kids to camp, just so you know. And then I'm going to give this one to Terrence, new to our CYP, because he made some guacamole last night. We have the, the college and professionals over our house, and we do a Bible study with them the, on uh, the first Friday of every month, and the, I'm just saying that guacamole, it was on fleek. Can I just say that? Uh, I did it. I got it. All right. All right. And if you don't know what that means, I didn't know either until yesterday because they're, they're keeping me up to date on my, uh, on, on my language. And so, all right. They said, he's not going to work it in. I, oh, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. So, and, and it was absolutely delicious. So if you have a chance to have some of Terrence's guacamole, you're, you're going to be doing good. Well, I'm excited for tonight. This is an important conversation. This is a conversation that, that has not been a part of church for far too long. The world has owned this conversation. It should not. And uh, as a church, we're going to do our part to take it back. And so we're in this series called Super, and, and uh, t- tying this, some, some ideas to, to this idea of superheroes and to kind of get us moving along the right direction. We like a little participation here at, at City Life, so we've been maybe doing some, some who's your favorite superhero, but tonight I thought maybe we would, we would do a little who's your favorite villain. Any, anybody got some favorite villains out there, Travis? Magneto, that's one of my favorites. I like that. I can't see everybody, so I'm just going to point. Say it loud. The Joker, nice. Is that Alan over there? Doc Hawk. Octopus. All right, all right. Come on, who else? Any other, any other favorite villains? Who, who, like, who likes the villains better than the superheroes? Let's see who you are. Don't be ashamed. Raise your hand. There you go. I see some late hands coming up. Heads of shame held low. Yeah, come on. The, the, the superhero wouldn't be interesting if there wasn't a villain, right? We can, can we just agree on that? The, in part of the series, what we've been, what we've been, what we've been saying is, is, is that the difference between the villain and the superhero is that they use their power of excess, the villain uses it to serve themselves, and the superhero uses it to serve others. And you and I were created by God for excess. We were created for more. We were created for super abundance. We were created for extra abundance. Galatians 5, 22 to 23. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The last part of this verse is incredibly instructional to us. It says, there is no law against these things, which means that you and I were created to have these things operating in our lives at a measure that is 
what the superhero would say, how on earth are you able to do that in this world? You look at superheroes and what they're able to accomplish and inspire some, because we say, how were they able to do that? As devoted followers of Christ, of children of God, in moments of conflict, we're supposed to be able to step in and be a peacemaker that makes it look like a superhero, not because of who we are, but because of the Holy Spirit working in us. It should cause the world to say, how did you do that? We should be able to move in moments of generosity. We should be joyful. When you look at this list and all the other ones through the five great growth lists that we teach here at City Life, the 24 virtues that we teach here at our church, that those things should be present in our lives to the point that it's just almost too much, but then we know it can never be too much. That's the life that we're called to live, a life of superabundance when it comes to character. So we've been talking about overeating, overspending, overworking. Tonight we're going to talk about oversexing. And then next weekend, Vanessa's going to be preaching for Mother's Day. It's dad only in the nursery. Come on. It's a mom-free zone in the nursery. And the weekend after Mother's Day, the kids always cry because we raised the bar so high. So I'm just saying, be ready for your kids to be sad. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And so the weekend after that, as Jamie said, is going to be the, the welcome weekend. You don't want to miss the welcome weekend. We're going to be talking more about the 2020 vision. Vanessa and I are going to be sharing about the, the, the miracle that God has done in our personal finances, a biblical proportion. You've probably seen some of it in the paper recently. And so we're going to be telling that story that weekend. It's, it's, I'm just telling you, it's going to be awesome. And then we were planning to conclude this series tonight, but Jamie and I have been talking. We're going to keep in the series for another three weeks after that. And so we're going to tackle some more ideas of excess that I think that are going to be important for us to work through together as a church. Let me read you this quote by Abraham J. Hessel. This is a favorite book of mine. Uh, His book's called The Prophets. He writes, an idea or theory of God can easily become a substitute for God. Impressive to the mind when God as a living reality is absent from the soul. To the prophets, God was overwhelmingly real in shatteringly present. City Life is going to be a place where we help people discover a God who is overwhelmingly real and shatteringly present in every area of your, of your life, including your sexuality. God wants to be present in every part of who we are because he created every part of who we are. This idea of compartmentalization is not supposed to be a part of our Christian experience. Psalm 139, 7 through 12. Let me share this text with you. It says, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you're there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there, your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even in darkness I cannot hide from you. To you the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. He is overwhelmingly real and shatteringly present. From Genesis to Revelation, God is declaring to the world, I am alive and I am here and I want to be present in your life and in your circumstance. That word that Stephanie had that she shared that God gave to her, come on, was that not awesome? How that fits into this moment, this is part of what we're saying tonight. God wants, to, God wants you to realize that he's there. 
And that so many times, as Stephanie said, we live a life of disconnectedness. And God said, no, I'm a part of it all. And the things that he can do, as she said, he's just a cry away. It was so good. So good. All right. So what kind of hero you're going to be? If I'm going to have a healthy, godly, biblical pleasure barrier breaking sexual identity and experience and, and experience, then I must learn to submit myself to these three principles. This is what we're going to work through tonight. We're going to we're going to get through them no, no matter what the clock says. I am created, I am celibate, and I am consecrated. I am created, I am celibate. I am consecrated. Father, as we dive into this conversation tonight, let it be that the church would take back this thing that the world has taken from us. They've taken it from us, God, because we've abdicated the place that you called us to be as a church. And so we know, God, that if your word addresses it, then it should be a part of our conversation. And your word has a lot to say about our sexual identity. May it be tonight that, Father, that truth would set people free tonight. People that came in with addiction, people that came in with shame, people that came in with a practice, people that, that, that came in with a, a life that's not really defined by you, that all of that tonight is going to be set free by the truth and the power of your word in Jesus' name. Come on, and everybody said, amen. amen. All right, I am created. Let's talk about I am created. Psalm 139, 13 through 14. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous how well I know it. We're going to be working a lot out of Psalm 139 tonight because it talks about God's intentionality with creation, especially in regards to his intentionality with us. I think too often we think that when it comes to our sexuality, that somehow God didn't realize we were going to be able to do that. That on the day that, 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 that Eve was created, that Adam and Eve found each other and God was like, oh my. It, it, we, we think sometimes, we approach this conversation about sexuality as like there was an emergency meeting and God wanted to know who was responsible for letting them do this. Or even worse, that God didn't create them and that somehow they evolved in a way. It, it, in the story of creation, can we just settle it now? After every day, God said that it was good, which means that it was perfect, which means that it did not need to evolve to change. He made it perfect from the beginning. And part of the perfection in which we cre he created was the capacity for sexual experience. It's part of how he made us. When I say I am created by God, it's all-encompassing. Every part of who I am, Psalm 139, speaks speaks to God's intentionality, and that includes our sexuality. So I want to read out of Genesis 2, 19 through 25, and then I'm going to work through these points. Genesis 2, if you're a note taker, Genesis 2, 19, 19 to 25. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each of them. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But still there was no helper just right for him. Part of the purpose that God had in having him name the animals is that Adam wanted to see that there was a union that happened in the natural world. He was trying to awaken Adam to this felt need that he had. So the Lord God caused man to fall asleep into a deep sleep. And while the man slept, the Lord God took out, of one, took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib 
And as he brought her to him, at last the man exclaimed, exclaimed, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She would be called woman because she was taken from man. God created Adam and Eve for one another. And part of how they are for one another is that they are for one another in an intimate, exclusive, which we're going to talk about in a little while, sexual relationship. Now, the story of the creation of the world is instructive to us in many ways, but it is certainly instructive to us in regards to our sexual capacity and our sexual identity. God names in the Bible the very first geographic place, and that's Eden. There's no other name geographically that's spoken of and called until that moment. It's called the law of first mention in the Bible. When something happens for the first time, it's, there's an extra significance that's given to it. Eden in the Hebrew means pleasure. Now, God could have picked anything to name that place, but he picked a word in Hebrew that meant pleasure because God's idea for the human experience is supposed to be pleasurable. Part of this human experience is that he created us with the capacity for pleasure. It was part of his plan. He could have made food just a source of fuel for the body, but he made that guacamole that parents made taste good. Are you with me? He could have made the world so that it was just monochromatic, but he didn't. He filled it with such beauty because part of his plan was for us to feel and experience pleasure. And part of that pleasure is supposed to be sexual pleasure. It's part of God's plan. It's even in the name of the beginning of the world. When sex happened matters. See, because I think a lot of Christians are just walking around thinking that this sexual experience is something that happened after the fall. It became part of the human experience, the way that they hide from it, the way that they were embarrassed about it, the way that they approach it with, with shame. And we're going to get to that, why a lot of that is. But, but it is as though they're lumping in this sexual experience and sexual identity with the fall of man, but it's not part of the fall of man. It was part of the world when the world was perfect. Just as we shared for the communion moment, we can't ever go back to the paradise of Eden until we get to the heaven after we breathe our last, if we've made a vow of devotion to Christ. But God in his infinite wisdom, even though that we're living in a time of a fall from grace, when Jesus came and died for our sins, he made a way for us to taste again some of what had been lost. And part of that is the indwelling spirit of God. Part of that is to be able to be in his presence. But even before Jesus died to give us that, even for the history of humanity after the fall, God allowed us to experience just a little taste of what once was to give us a vision of what's to come. Rest is a great example of that. Rest is such an important part of our journey. Why Jamie preached on it while it's part of this series because it's one of the ways that we taste of what once was. Nature working to build God's kingdom. You see that God gave man jobs while he was there. And I know that the work that we have to do to earn a living is part of the curse, but the work that we do to build his kingdom is not part of the curse. It's part of the return to what once, which was perfect in paradise. Marriage is part of tasting of what once was. Sexual experience within the context of marriage is one of the ways that we get to go back and taste of what was perfect and what happened before Adam and Eve ate from the fateful fruit. Let's talk about the difference between innocent and naive. We, we can't read the story of creation and think that, that, that Adam and Eve were naive. 
right? Because naive means that, 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 that they did not have a conscious understanding of the purpose of sex. They didn't have a conscious under, understanding of the, of the meaningfulness of their sexual relationship. There is nothing about the story of creation that, that should cause us to believe that Adam and Eve were childish in their intellect or childish in their understanding. They were a part early on of helping to establish order in our natural world. One of the reasons why we talked about, one reason why Adam was invited into the naming of the animals was to make him aware of his felt need for his wife, but it was also part of God saying to us that Adam and Eve were part of establishing the order of this natural world, that they participated in, in, in managing and stewarding. Uh, they, 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 they were given the command to be fruitful and multiply, that they had to exercise dominion over this garden. Who, who's... We, you're not even going to put a child in charge of just the laundry in your house. Are you with me? Who's going to put a child in charge of the created world? They weren't children. They weren't childish. God made them as adults, and they had fully functioning intellects. They were not naive, but they were most certainly innocent. Innocent means that everything that they did was without shame until they ate the fruit. That everything that they did, they did with a clean conscience before they ate the fruit. Which means that the sexual relationship that they have was not a childish experience. It was a mature adult experience. And they had and they celebrated this relationship and this experience without any shame because it was one of the gifts, the great gifts that God had given to the world. And it's the same with you and I. We were created that way. Daniel 7, 9, Daniel 7, 9 I watched as thrones were put in place and the ancient one sat down to judge. His clothing was as white as snow, his hair like purest wool. He sat on a fiery throne with wheels of blazing fire. He's called the ancient one there in Daniel. Isaiah 43, 13 says, From eternity to eternity I am God. No one can snatch anyone out of my hand and no one can undo what I have done. This is, I think, another reason why that Christians oftentimes and even the world has a, have an inhibition when it comes to letting God teach us about our sexuality because when the Bible talks about God being oh, the ancient one or the ancient of days, some translations render it, or it talks about him having been around forever, we automatically sign through our bias of our human experience that he's old. And when we think of him being old, we think of him as being out of touch because he doesn't know what on fleek means right you we think of god as being old you you need to stop thinking of god as old there's nothing wrong with old i'm not putting down old but that means something in our human experience that doesn't mean anything to god he's not old he's eternal he's not old he's forever he, actually he's the picture of youthfulness because he does not age he's he's always and forever relevant and so I hope you're raising your kids not with this idea that God is this white-headed, white-bearded, old person, right? Because that forms, that, that plays on the biases of our humanity. We should be talking with our children and talking with each other and talking to our world that God is this living force of love and fatherhood and power in the world. He could not be more relevant to every circumstance in every situation. And he has a lot to teach us about our sexuality. And we need to hear it because he created it. And if we begin to walk in the understanding of how he created us, I'm telling you that we will experience our sexuality in the way that he intended and that we can begin to lead the world in an understanding of sexuality that God intended for it to have. 
I am celibate. I think there's an extra measure of pollen in this room tonight, huh? Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to maybe redefine for some of you what this word means because all of us are celibate, whether you're married or not. And for some of us, the, the, the struggle that you have with self-control and the area of your, your sexual desires is because you're not walking the re- revelation of this idea of celibacy. Psalm 139, 24. And see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. It's part of what we were just talking about. The writer of Psalm is saying, God, I understand that, that you couldn't be more relevant to every area of your life, so examine me. If there's anything in me that's not in step with the truth of your word, if there's anything in me that's inconsistent with the truth of Scripture, show it to me because I, I want to be in line with who you are. You're the eternal one, and I trust that everything that you have to say to me is perfect. Everything that you don't want me to do, I need to walk away from, and everything that I need to start doing, I need to embrace. I am celibate. Let me talk about this book called Sex, Men, and God by Doug Weiss. If you don't have this book, if, if you've, this is written uh, for, for men, but, but, but I'm telling you that if, if you're a woman, you should read it too. If you are married or if you hope to be married one day, this is going to help you understand uh, uh, the sexuality of man. But it also just under, will help you understand human sexuality. Again, even though it's written for the perspective. But if you're a man and you've not read this book, you, need to, you, you just need to buy it. You go online, you need to buy, you need to read this book. Someone gave this book to me, I want to say it was probably 10 years ago. I, I, I cannot recommend it enough. Vanessa and I read it. It's an amazing book. And part of what I'm going to share over these next few minutes, are, I'm, I'm building on it, but, uh, but, but it comes out of here. So I want to give credit where credit is due. So I want you to imagine tonight that, that, that you have some Play-Doh in your hand or some clay. And you mash it out into a circle and it's perfectly smooth and perfectly flat. Maybe if you cook, you'd like the better analogy of some dough that you've made, and you've rolled it out onto a countertop, and it's, it's perfectly smooth and, and, and perfectly flat. This is a powerful image for us because that is the pleasure center of your brain that's connected to your sexuality by God's design. He made you that way. And I want you to imagine that, that, that we took this Play-Doh that, that, that all of us would have, and if we had time to do it, that, that all of us went around the room and we borrowed something from somebody and made an imprint, like I would ask for your credit card. We'd make an imprint, right? And you make it a key, a, a pen, you, you make an imprint. And, and then it, we would walk around and maybe we would show it and say, what is this? And for, for most of the objects, you would be able to figure it out, right? It would, it would have clarity. But, but what if what we said is, I want you to find 30 items in this room and put them all on here. It would be marred. It would be indistinguishable. It, it would, it, it, we would look at it, 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 would be, it would be confusing. And part of what Doug Weiss so geniusly teaches us in this book about, about the human brain is that God created you with a brain that has a malle- malleable sexual imprint So that when you get married, if you've lived the way that you're supposed to live, your spouse is the first person to ever make an imprint on that part of your brain. And he made you so that you would be conditioned in your brain to only respond sexually to one person. 
And so the myth in the world, the lie of the world that sets people up for failure is that you've got to experiment sexually so that you'll know you're sexually compatible. But what you're really doing is just marring up your imprint so that when you get married, you've got this this part of your brain that, that your wife or your husband is competing with for a very long time. Now, part of the genius of God is that it is malleable, which, am I saying that word right? Because I don't want Jenna to make fun of me like she did last weekend after Sunday. All right, just asking. <laughs> so, 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 it's malleable, which means that over time, it can smooth back out. Isn't God genius? So, so that if your life is ugly, like many of our lives were ugly before we came to Christ, that, that we came into our marriage with a, a marred sexual imprint, over time that thing gets smoothed back out if you walk in this place of exclusivity, which we're going to talk about in just a minute, and then all of a sudden your spouse is the only imprint that you have. See, as, as Christians, we're not prudes. We're smart because we understand how God made us. And, and so this idea of virginity isn't about God not wanting you to do something because he doesn't want you to have fun. It's not about, about this, 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 this traditional ideal or, or value that the world would have you believe that's outdated. It's what we're teaching our children. You fight to protect your brain so that when you get married, your spouse is going to be the first and only imprint that's on there. So many people struggle in their sexual relationship. It's, it's, it's not as pleasurable as it's supposed to be because they have the smart imprint. And, it, and it's some of the things that I'm talking with you tonight, if you've never heard them before or, or you're struggling with things, we, we don't want you to leave tonight and just and, and sulk. And, you're right, you can call us. You can email us. We're going to protect your identity. We're going to protect your privacy. There's paths forward. There are people here in the church that we can connect you with, that you can begin to go on a journey of healing. But part of what we're supposed to be teaching our children about is this idea of virginity is to be the guardian of their imprint to protect it, give them the illustration of the Plato, help them understand it, help them see it, because then, then they're going to be more inclined to walk in the wisdom of God's word because it makes sense to them. God wants there to be understanding. Let's talk a little bit about muscle memory. See, it's not just your brain, but it's your physical body. In the series, Laughing Your Way to a Better Marriage, it's an amazing series, it's an amazing teaching on, on sexuality. This idea that your body was designed by God to have muscle memory. Now, we're in the middle of the NFL draft, go skins. And, 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 and so we understand this idea of muscle memory when it comes to athletics. You, you, if you've been around athletics for any amount of time, right? You're, of course muscle memory is, is important. Muscle memory is, is just as important when it comes to your sexuality. So not only are you supposed to protect the, the, your imprint, this pleasure center of your brain, that's what virginity is, part of what virginity is about. We're going to get into the spiritual side of it when we get to the last one, which is I am consecrated. But, but this, this idea that your body was created for muscle memory, memory for sexual experience. That, that, that these parts of your body, that, that as you begin to share in the sexual experience, that they're supposed to have a muscle memory that responds to a certain person in ways that you experience and celebrate pleasure together and if you experiment sexually before you get married and live a life of promiscuity what happens is is that your your muscle memory gets confused you're like a sexual alzheimer's person going into your marriage are you with me 
It's important that we, we have got to stop being silent as a church. The wisdom that's in God's word for us as mankind and our sexuality, it's important. No wonder the world is confused. No wonder people are confused with their sexual identity. No wonder there's so much infidelity in marriage. No wonder there's so much sexual addiction because we're just, ah, la, 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 all right, walking away. We don't want to talk about it. Stop it. Let the wisdom of this word wash over us and set us free. And can we not teach the world the wisdom of the truth of God's word? That's why masturbation is not good in marriage. I don't care what doctors tell you, scientists tell you, if you're looking at pornography and you're by yourself and you're stepping into moments of self-gratification, you can give yourself the lie that I'm not committing adultery because I'm not with another person. But what you're doing is you're establishing a pattern of muscle memory with your body that works against your spouse. Now, are there some exceptions to certain circumstances and situations where married couples are apart for an extended amount of time? Are there some biological conversations that should happen? Yes, there are, and, but that's the exception. And, and there's great Christian psychologists and psychologists that are out there that talk about that. Doug Weiss addresses that in this book. But we can't use that exception and that special permission for certain reasons to now be permission giving in other areas of our life when we're not walking in that special circumstance. If you don't understand how God made your brain and how he made your body, then you're going to live your life sexually confused and you don't have to be that way. Some of you are visiting tonight and you tell people that you're going to be visiting a new church and you're going to go home and they're going to say, how was church? Well, they talked about money and sex. And there was an action figure of Jesus on the pastor's table. I think if you were to tell people that, I think we'd have to put out extra seats next week. I'm just saying. Just saying. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5, the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs. This is in the Bible. Some of you are like, I didn't know that. It's in the Bible. And the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so that you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. So it's, it gets talking about this idea of fasting. You can fast in different ways in life. Afterward, you should, listen to what he says, after you, Lord, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Mark 10, 8, and says, and the two are united into one since they no longer are two but they are one. This idea of, of in, a, in a marriage relationship, this idea of, of, of marriage relationship for, for, for celibacy, what I'm trying to say to you is, is that in, before you get married, before you get married, celibacy means that, that you do not enter into any sexual arousing experiences. That's the phrase that you need to learn. It's not about the actual act of intercourse. It's about anything that is sexually arousing. That creates an imprint on your brain. That creates muscle memory. So how far is too far? If it's arousing, it's too far. Because you begin to touch your brain and teach your body. And so when you get into marriage, 
when you get into marriage, you're still celibate. See, this is what we get confused about, and this is why marriages struggle. See, if you live a life of celibacy when you, celibacy when you come into marriage, your marriage is set up for success because you understand celibacy, and now if you think of it as concentric circles, just the center of your life, this one relationship with this one person now has perfect sexual freedom, but every other area of your life remains celibate. What happens is people come into marriage with sexual promiscuity, and then what they try to do is now make every other area of their life celibate, and it's almost an impossible task. It's not impossible, but it's a lot of work. Let's set our kids up for success. Teach them that we're called to a life of celibacy even after marriage. I'm celibate in every other way except with my spouse. This idea of the two shall become one, it's not just poetic. It's real. That's what we believe. Met with somebody this week and talking about their marriage vows. And a lot of times people want to do their own vows. I love it when couples do their own vows. But one of the things I say is that we're still going to do the traditional ones. Because the traditional ones step you into a place where you say very specific things. And I believe those vows are important because I think something supernatural happens when you make that vow. It's like when you make a vow of devotion to Christ, right? This, this declaration of faith, the Spirit of God comes and lives inside of you. Vow is important for marriage. It's all so interconnected. That's why God uses this analogy of us being the bride of Christ, that when you stand before a sacred altar as two devoted followers of Christ, and you make these vows that God does something that's supernatural, and at a soul level, He begins to merge you together, and you become one person. It's not poetic. It's not hyperbole. It's real stuff. You and I were not designed by God to experience a physical union until we first experience a soul union. So when you say to yourself, it's okay for us to enter into sexually arousing experiences with each other because we're going to get married Anyways, I'm just telling you it's an example of the arrogance of our humanity because we are working against a divine order. And if you want to work against the divine order, I'm just saying don't live your life that way. Trust that God says if this is supposed to come after that, there's a reason for it. There is a soul union that happens in that ceremony which then you step into that first night together for the first time, and that physical union is an expression of the soul union, but it is also now stepping into what you were created to experience together, a new kind of pleasure that God always intended to be a part of creation from the beginning of time. I'm created, and I'm celibate. All right, let's do one more. I am consecrated. I am consecrated. Psalm 139, 16, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment, moment was laid out before a single day had passed. I believe that God has a dream for all of our lives. He has a dream for your life. He has a dream for my life. He doesn't just have a dream for humanity. He has a dream for you as a person, for me as a person. And part of this idea of consecration is to say, God, I want to live the life that you've dreamed for me. I want to I fulfill the dream. Sometimes as parents, we have dreams for our kids, and we need to let them go because it's not our role to shape their life. Does that make sense? 
my things that you hoped they were going to become or vocational pursuits or certain sports. But at some point as parents, we need to step back and let them become who they're going to be. That has nothing to do with our relationship with God. That's an earthly relationship. In a divine relationship, we don't say to God, God, don't, don't project your dreams on me, right? It's, it sounds comical, but for many of us, that's how we live our lives. There should be something inside of us, this idea of consecration, this idea of our lives being set apart. It's not just about not doing the things I'm not supposed to do. It's about doing the things that I am supposed to do. It's about living your life with a confession of prayer every moment of your life. God, be it unto me as you will. I want to be the person you've called me to be. I, I want to accomplish the things that you've accomplished, that you've dreamed for me to accomplish. I want to be a living fulfillment of everything that you have written in this book about my life. And that includes our sexual identity. Appetite confusion. Sometimes we feel hungry when all our body really wants is a glass of water. Dehydration is often mistaken for hunger. It's estimated that 75% of Americans go through life chronically dehydrated. Before you grab a handful of chips or other snacks, try having a glass of water and see if that calms your hunger down. Water can help calm hunger and can help you overeat less. Now, some of you are thinking, what on earth does that have to do with sexual identity, right? So later tonight, you're going to say to your wife, hey, how about we put the kids to bed early tonight? Your wife's going to say, well, maybe you should try a glass of water first. This idea of appetite confusion, it, it's a part of our, our, our struggle with overeating, but, but the concept, I'm, I'm reading that to you because you relate to that, right? You understand that. You, many of you, that's not the first time you've heard that, but appetite confusion is a huge part of this journey of consecration, which again is why there's so much sexual addiction in the world. So let's talk a little bit about, about appetite confusion when it comes to our emotion. When you're emotionally dehydrated, when you're emotionally malnourished, oftentimes your sexual appetite is out of control. So if you're in a dating relationship, let me give you another book. If you're a young adult, if you're in a dating relationship that could move forward to marriage, if you hope to be married one day, if you've got children that think are going to be married one day, Dr. John Van Epp, How to Avoid Falling in Love with a Jerk. It's an, I'm telling you, it's a funny title. The book's unbelievable. How to Avoid Falling in Love with a Jerk by Dr. John Van Epp. And he talks about how, how the human heart was created by God and designed to step into a, a relationship that culminates with physical touch, but it begins with just knowing each other. And he talks about how these things, all these things get out of order. You, you should read it for yourself. We don't have time to hit it all. But part of what he's talking about is this idea of if, if in your relationship with this person that you're dating, if you're emotionally malnourished and emotionally dehydrated, oftentimes you're rushing into the sexual experience because you're craving an emotional connection. And that crave for emotional connection, it's real. It's just like when your body is really thirsty, that craving is there for a reason. And, and, and what happens is we start to meet these cravings in the wrong way because we're confused. If you're in a marriage relationship, you can be emotionally dehydrated and emotionally malnourished and you're relying on your sexual relationship to meet an emotional need that it cannot. Your sexual relationship is actually its healthiest when it's moving out of a place of emotional health. When, when, when you're single and your, your sexuality is out of control, oftentimes it's because you're emotionally dehydrated and emotionally malnourished. 
There's all kinds of ways that you experience emotional intimacy with people. There's something called volitional intimacy. It's, it's making decisions together with other people. That's why this idea of community and church, it's so important for us at so many levels. There's something to call, called aspirational intimacy. It's this idea of sharing with other people about your hopes and your, and your dreams. There, there's something called activity intimacy, just being involved with other people. There's, there's physical intimacy that's non-sexual. Most of the men in the room went, huh, huh. I know, right? There's physical intimacy that's, that's non-sexual. Hugs and handshakes and with your, with your spouse holding hands, with your children holding hands. You with me? That this idea that some people are just starved because of non-sexual connection. So their sexual appetite is just out of control. And that list goes on and on. There's spiritual intimacy. Praying with people, worshiping together, studying what we're doing together tonight, right? It, church is one of the places where your emotional tank just gets filled up because you do so many of these things all together. Some of you, there's an addiction that's in your life that's out of control with pornography or whatever it is, a fantasy life, even though you're married and you went into marriage with this problem and you thought, well, once I get married, that's going to go away because I'm going to have an opportunity to have a sexual experience. But what you didn't realize is this thing had nothing to do with the fact that you didn't have a partner to have sex with. It was because you're emotionally dehydrated and emotionally malnourished. And that's why this addiction won't go away. You can be spiritually dehydrated and spiritually malnourished. The 12 pathways that we teach as a church, one of the reasons why these pathways are important is so that you feel spiritually satisfied. And if you're not spiritually satisfied, if you're spiritually dehydrated and spiritually malnourished, guess what? Your sexual appetite is one of the appetites that just runs rampant. When I talk with men, it's, it's usually it's men. That's another sermon for another time. But it's not always men, but most of the time it's men who struggle with sexual addiction and, and, and problems with sexual self-control. I talk to them about these things. And so many times men don't want to talk about these things. They just want help with their problem. But what they don't realize is that their problem is born out of this. That if they were emotionally healthy and spiritually healthy, they wouldn't be so vulnerable to the sexual temptation that they're struggling with. Matthew 6.33 says, listen, listen, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all things will be added unto you. All things is an all-encompassing statement. If we begin to give our lives to the things that God says for us to give our lives to, it doesn't mean that we live a life without temptation. It just means that when that temptation comes, that we're prepared for it. That we don't have to be vulnerable to it. You can make a declaration that you're going to be celibate in your marriage apart from your relationship with your spouse, but you're still going to experience sexual temptation every day of your life. And the, one of the ways that you can get ready for that is to make sure that every other area of your life is strong and healthy. You've got to engage your will. You've got to choose. You have got to choose. God did not create you to be a victim to your appetites. He gave you those appetites so that they could serve you. He gave you those appetites so that you could be a steward over them. He gave you those appetites, all the appetites that you and I have, so that we could experience pleasure in this world. All right, I'm in the home stretch. Matthew 4, 4 says this, But Jesus told him, referring to Satan, No, the scripture say, Please do not live, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Sometimes we over-narrow certain texts, which means that we teach just one part of it. 
And then oftentimes that part is all that ever gets taught. And we forget that so many times texts like this have a, a bigger application. And part of the bigger application of this is that Jesus is saying to the world, understand that you have many appetites and you have many needs. And if these other ones, especially the ones that are spiritual, are being fully satisfied, then you're not going to be so vulnerable in these moments of temptation. It's the, what Jesus walked in himself. It's part of the miracle of who Jesus is. It, the Bible says in Hebrews that he was tempted in every, every way, but he never sinned. Now, let me talk to, I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. I want to talk to married couples for a minute, and then I want to talk to parents for a minute. Married couples, one of the reasons why sexuality is such an important part of your, 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 your marriage is, is because marriages need the experience of vulnerability to go deep emotional together. And part of what makes marriage work is trust, which we're going to get to in a minute. And you cannot have trust without vulnerability. And, and there are a few things in life that are as, as vulnerable as two people being naked together, sharing in a sexual experience. This, this is by God's design. He makes it so that we're vulnerable. That's part of this experience. It's not just some biological exchange. It's spiritual. It's, 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 it's soulish. It's, it's, it's something beautiful that God created. And part of it is that there's this moment of vulnerability that you step into with each other. And in that place of vulnerability, what makes you to be completely vulnerable is that you know that the other person is practicing what's called exclusivity, which means that they're celibate in every other area of their life. That's why infidelity is so undermining. That's why, 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 why pornography is so undermining of, of marriages is because if the spouse does not believe that the other person is practicing celibacy outside of this relationship, then it makes them not want to be as vulnerable, and then it also causes them to not want to trust. And if there's not trust, that's the foundation that makes marriage work. You might say, well, I thought it was love. I would say to you, you can't have 1 Corinthians love unless there is a foundation of trust. It's part of what love is. Trust is so intertwined with it. So, so if you're a, a married couple, this idea of, of, of being able to step into a shameless moment with each other, you've got to get there. And if you don't know how to get there, then we want to put you in touch with some couples that can talk with you to help you get there. So that you can step into the vulnerability, that you can restore exclusivity, and trust can be restored to your marriage so that it can be everything that it's supposed to be. Parents, I'm going to be hard on parents. If you're a parent here tonight and your kids have been raised and, and maybe you didn't do everything that you were supposed to do, what I'm about to say is not to make you feel bad. But I'm not going to let my conversation with the parents that need to hear it now because of the children that are in their home be held back because I'm afraid of hurting your feelings. If you made mistakes raising your kids and your kids are walking out a life because of those mistakes, we can't change what happened in the past. But we can help you relate to them as an adult now so that, that you can begin to restore the influence that you need to have with them. And if that's you, I'd love to talk to you about how to do that. But if you've got children in your home now, lead them. This lie that is in our society, that kids get to choose their sexual identity, came right out of the pit of hell. That we have a responsibility as Christian parents to teach our kids what's in this book. 
And if you've not read my blog, I write an entire blog. If you've not read it, you need to read it. If you feel under-resourced, if you feel behind the times when it comes to this idea, it's, and I'm telling you, it's an apologetic blog. It's a loving blog. But I'm telling you, we, we, we just, we, we talk about it. We talk about it. You, as a parent, were chosen by God to lead your child in every way, but especially to teach them about their sexual identity to teach them, to lead them in it, and to not just let them. You would, you would never just let your kid figure stuff out, right? So let's just, let's exaggerate. Your kid's three. I'm just going to let him play outside in the yard by himself so he can figure out the idea of traffic on his own. Who does that? Yeah, we call that neglect. You with me? I'm going to let my kid figure out that those outlets, if they put their finger in there, they, they get a shot. Let it, let's let them figure that out on their own. Who, who does that? It's neglect. Sexual neglect happens in our homes because parents will not muster up the courage that they need to lead their children. And if you need help with that, we'd love to help you figure that out. One of the main reasons why parents fail in leading their children with their sexual identity is because they're embarrassed about their own lack of purity in their own life. That's selfishness. You've got to get your life together if for no other reason, get it together so that you can lead your kids. So that, that maybe even part as your kids get older, that you can even talk to them about some of the mistakes that you've made so that they can learn from yours. And the last one is resources. This is what we've used as a family from when our kids were little. If you go onto Amazon.com and Google Christian sex education and then put in Concordia Publishing, Concordia, C-O-N-C-O-R-D-I-A, Concordia Publishing, there'll be a series of books that come up that's age appropriate for girls and boys so that you can start when they're little and then as they pass into different age groups that you read that book with your child. I'm telling you, there are are amazing resources that are available to you. Resource yourself. Get your own life together and find the moral courage to lead your children. For so many of us, we grew up in a home where our parents never had this conversation with us. And our life has suffered the consequences of those things. Don't repeat. Don't repeat that to your kids. Let's stand together and worship.
it tonight. Come on, by the blood of the Lamb. You say, for the Lamb. 